In today's episode, I chat with Lily, the daughter of Tina Greer, whose missing persons case we covered in our previous episode. Lily shares with me details about her childhood and her life with Tina before she went missing. We learn about her experiences as a witness to domestic violence and the abuse that Tina suffered at the hands of her ex-partner. The conversation leads to Lily's journey for justice, including her hope of finding her mum and her fight for a coronial inquest. Lily is insightful, inspirational and determined. She started the Tina Greer Project to help not only her mother's case, but to advocate for positive and systemic change to prevent other women meeting the same fate as Tina. You can connect with Lily on her website and all the socials at the Tina Greer Project. And I'll leave a link in the show notes of all those for you. We start our conversation with Lily talking about her childhood. My childhood was very complicated. Essentially, I lived with my mum until I was about six, and then I went into the custody of my grandparents. Was that your mum's parents? My mum's dad um, and my step-grandmother, and I was put into their custody because of domestic violence and my mum had an alcohol problem, so they had me until I was 13 and I ran away from living with them and my mum regained custody of me and I lived with my mum oh, probably for eight weeks and then she went missing. Okay. So that was like my, until 13, that was quite, this is a summary of my childhood would be trying to the goal would be trying to live back with my mom and like um, fostering that relationship. And that was kind of always the highlight of all of our conversations and like future looking. When you say you ran away, where did you go? Um, so it's very complicated and not public knowledge, but okay. um, that's okay. I can talk about it briefly. Essentially, my grandparents are very religious and just completely different people to my mom and I. And they didn't, I didn't agree with the religion and I was not treated favorably by them so I they wanted to put me in foster care so I called my mom because I had a secret phone and I said this is what's happening and she just said run I ran out the back door into like Beachmont um like a park area like bushland and like yeah. waited for three hours and then she and her partner Les came and picked me up and then that kind of started the process of her regaining custody wow Lily, that's really full on. You were about to be put into foster care by your grandparents and your mum saved you from that and worked really hard to get custody of you. Which yeah, is... that's the short version, yep. Can you tell me a bit about your mum, what she was like? She was very fiery and enthusiastic, always very energetic. I say this a lot, but it's like a big part of our relationship, I think. She was a young mum, so she had me when she was 19, so that comes with a lot of positive and negatives. But we were always just doing things, like very active. She was always keen to jump on the trampoline with me and get her hands dirty. So that was like an amazing part of our relationship. She definitely had her ups and downs as a parent. I guess every young parent goes through all of those things, especially when you're going through custody battles. But she was super, yeah, as I said, energetic and very, like, bubbly. Uh, <laughs> and 
just very honest and upfront as well. So I was treated probably older than my age, but it, it's been a benefit looking back. Was she raised by the grandparent who? Yes. Yeah. So that would have been challenging. Yes. So my whole family was raised Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Right. Yep. So that in itself, um, they were more. So I'm lucky, whereas I knew a difference. Like I had like the religious versus non-religious. Yeah. So I got exposure to that, but they didn't. So it was a very tight-knit community and I've spoken about it before, but essentially it's, yeah, you're in or you're out and once you're out, there's no support. Yeah. Um, and it's it's extremely rigid. Um, I'm not sure if like, you know much about Jehovah's Witnesses. No, but I know a bit about cults. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds... A bit like when you leave a cult. It's, it's very similar. Um, I obviously am very biased because I don't agree with its teachings and principles. Um, but essentially it's a very strict form of Christianity and you aren't encouraged to have uh, worldly friends, which is anyone that isn't a part of the religion. Yeah. And just all the they don't celebrate like pagan holidays, so Christmas, Easter, birthdays. And, yeah, it's a lot of dedicating your time to the kingdom hall or the congregation. So it's like three times a week, door knocking, all of that. So it's very insular. Um, Obviously all the views about women not having as many rights, all of the fun stuff. Um, Yeah. So it was was very traumatic for my mum growing up like that and uh, she was also – abused by a member or like sexually assaulted by a member when she was a child so molested would be the word um so yeah that that's a bit of my mum's background so coming into that um it's It's a a lot it's a lot yeah (laughs) and if you could tell me I know it's really heavy but what are some of your fondest memories that you have with your mum I have a lot of good memories with her mainly our car drives so we would drive a lot from our house to his house or vice versa that drive was about two hours back then so we would always just be like chatting 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 chatting, like the whole time um singing listening to music and just like having the best time I suppose so that's one of the key memories that I always enjoyed about the time leading up to your mum's disappearance so probably three years leading up to this it was a very violent relationship um her and les that he was very abusive but so essentially we moved to go to where i was closer to the school so i never actually lived with him and we moved to beachmont where i was going to school and he obviously didn't like the separation. So she had left him and it was this kind of like push and pull. They were together, they weren't together, making threats, um, all the typical things you see when people are trying to leave a relationship. So, yeah. And was that the very first time that she had left him to live independently? That was in like three years, the first proper like address change. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's a big deal and obviously with that you lose a lot of control and her priority was solely me at that point. So there was a lot of like jealousy happening and she had tried to leave before but it never had been successful and I guess now she had like a concrete reason like this is 
legitimate, uh, like I have a child to look after now. Yeah. So during that time there was a lot of, yeah, threatening. Um, he would just come to the house, rock up, and, for instance, so it's very hard to explain, like, chronologically, but we were being stalked at the time. We didn't know who it was, but looking back, it is likely, and I believe it was him. Do you think that that was his one of his final acts of control over Tina, like thinking, well, she's not coming back to me and I want her to still be fearful? Yeah. And so how can I control her fear levels and keep her in this state of fear? Yeah, 100%. So we didn't know who it was, but so during this time, every night between maybe 10 and 2 a.m., someone was outside the house like rattling the windows and it got like progressively more aggressive and I guess violent. So it got to the point where her car was vandalised and, yeah, we weren't leaving the house. We were sleeping in the daytime. We were, this was a very fearful time in both of our lives. And the police were called, but they didn't believe that it was happening either, which will be discussed in um, the inquest, I can imagine. But, yeah, it was a, a lot of that paired with him threatening her, saying, like, I'll ruin your life, um, you won't get a job anywhere, all of those types of things, um, as well as physical violence. It was very explicit his motives and uh, she also relied on him financially so that was another tricky thing that was we were going through um, yeah. so we didn't have much money so all of these things it's it's like all domestic violence relationships that you gain full control of everything and all your yeah. connections and finances um, so yeah it was very intense we didn't because we were sleeping in the daytime we didn't answer the door one time so he actually broke our door like the lock and the hinges so that with us being stalked we didn't know it was him so we we're barricading ourselves into our house at night like it was very scary yeah and i imagine for you that would have been really really scary to live through i wasn't it's strange i wasn't scared of him i more okay. just thought this guy is crazy yeah right like this is not normal behavior my mum was obviously scared of him but I was very scared of the stalking because obviously I didn't know that it was him and it was scary to watch my mum being physically hurt and like scary to see her scared but I just thought this guy is a lunatic so you never felt personally physically threatened by him he was it's it's a short man syndrome I suppose um he was a scary looking guy but he was also short the only time where I was physically kind of threatened by him was try- he was trying to drag my mum down the hallway in our house to talk to her. Um, it wasn't he was trying to assault her essentially. So I was pulling her, and then he like grabbed me off her and was like, "Get off her! I'll, I'll smash her face in." I think those were the words. Mm-hmm. So that was like scary, but it was more so like I didn't. I was more worried about my mum being hurt. Yeah. And then just small things like he would, um, if we were ever in the car with him and there was like an argument, he'd like start veering around off the road and stuff. So just, yeah, but it was more so scared for my mum because I think she, most of the implications were violence towards her. Yeah, yeah. So this had been building and then what happened on the day she dropped you off at a friend's place for a sleepover? Yeah, so we went school shopping with myself, my mum and another mother and daughter and she dropped me off about 2pm in Canungra with them 
she was supposed to go out to his property. So it's very like hit and miss, like why is she going to his property if she's in an abusive relationship? But that's how abusive relationships work and we were scared and she she made that decision, unfortunately, um, but that's like you we can't change that now. But a lot of people ask me, well, why was she going there? <laughs> it's like um, most of the decisions that people make uh, are logical in these relationships. So she went to his property, the plan was to fix the car because it had been vandalized so she didn't want it to rust and we didn't have much so the car was very important and to do our washing yeah so she had a very legitimate reason to go there yeah some people argue yes some people argue no well yeah so she went there and the plan was to come back the next day at like 5 p.m pick myself and my friend up for another sleepover and we were about to start school the following week. So it was a very exciting time in our lives and we had a lot to look forward to. And her birthday is also um, on the 26th of January. So, yeah, it was a very close time period to yep. all those things. And then she didn't come the mm. next day. Yeah. Yeah, the next day she was supposed to come around five-ish and that just never happened. So that kind of started the whole missing persons I know it's hard to put into words. I mean, you were so young, but also at a really, I think, important and pertinent time in your life. You already knew a lot about the world, I imagine. Then this happens. When did you get this like fire and this fight other than you obviously have that from your mum, but like, Mm. was there like this big turning point for you or was it just this slow build after the impact? I've always been very... um... Uh, not aggro I don't know it's just like yeah like my blood boils like thinking about it and missing persons um and families of missing persons is just such like a life-altering experience that you cannot describe it it's so hard to describe unless you know someone that's been through it um Mm. essentially I didn't know that she was dead or I didn't want to believe that she was dead straight away um or had been murdered. Technically, we don't know if he murdered her, but the coroner believes that and the police believe that. So, yeah, probably three days, four days, up to a week, it was just kind of like, what is going on? I had hoped that maybe she had got away, like child thinking, so I thought maybe she's, like, got away and she's hiding in the bushlands near his property and it was raining a lot of the time, so I thought, oh, my God, I hope she's, like, dry and safe. Those were, like, my kid thoughts about it at the time. And I, like, was holding on to all of her clothes and things like that in case she came back. But it was pretty naive to think that. Um, but I guess at that point in time you're hoping for anything. And, yeah, I, I immediately had, like, this gut feeling of, like, this is very bad uh, because, yeah, she was very – active on her phone so for instance if she was ever running late it would always be like I'm coming a little like two minutes away um so it's very out of the ordinary for her and at the time because I was a child I had zero power um with the whole police investigation any of it I was only interviewed once so I got interviewed four days after she was missing mind you Les came to the property where I was and um I think it was an intimidation tactic towards the family and he was like crying, missing her, but wouldn't come to the police station, all of those types of things. Uh, so I was interviewed, yeah, four, three or four days after she went missing. Um, and that and was did it. you say he was there or he had turned up he, prior to that interview? 
he knew that we were going to the police. So that evening before we went, he came to the property where I was staying. To have a chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because obviously he's a gang member and whatnot. um, So I think that played a big part in like intimidating people not from talking. Um, I don't know if the people I was staying with were involved. They've been ruled out currently. But yeah, it's so hard to know. You just think of like a million different which ways things could have gone down. Do you ever feel worried or afraid or intimidated now? No. So I think that's how gangs or bikies, whatever you want to call them, work through intimidation but um yeah I've gotten quite vocal at the beginning like I think I was more scared because my family was scared but it's also like if you are going to come out of me like come for me it's going to be very obvious yeah that's true yeah like it's it's really (laughs) stupid on your side if you want to do that yeah Um, you're like way out in the spotlight right now mm -hmm. and so yeah like if anything was to happen it would be pretty clear True. So that's, that's, I always have that, I think. But sometimes you're scared, but that's the whole, that's what they want. So I think it's more powerful to overlook that. And obviously, they're, they're all, anyone that's involved is obviously shitting themselves. Sorry if I'm. And you've never received any messages or threats? I'm not sure if it's from anyone about? that's been involved. Okay. So I've posted a lot on the social media, particularly about Les recently saying, if you know this man, you know my mom contact me if you know what happened etc and lots of people comment saying like you're going to end up in a hole but I think it's just trolls right yeah love the trolls yeah (laughs) so no one that I know has threatened me if that makes sense yeah it does so going back to the investigation I got the feeling from what I read and researched that the police spent a lot of time focusing on the area surrounding her car and not focusing on the people who were surrounding her at the time or did they focus on him and them and it's just not widely reported or known? It's very tricky. I also have to be careful of what I say because um, obviously I have a lot of access to all the evidence or lack of evidence, should I say. The police investigation is a real thorn in my side, I suppose. Essentially, they I don't know where they searched except for what has been reported on in the media. I still right. don't have that. That was actually they rejected that. The coroner's court said no to that information uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. So what I can say is that he was a known criminal. His criminal record is very, very long and she had reported domestic violence in the past and so had members of the public. Against him? Yes. Uh, She never placed an ABO. However, there was a very strong case against him. Okay. He also goes and buys a new queen-size mattress the next day after she goes missing. That's public knowledge. And that mattress is taken to a dump. Uh, His friend dumps that. And there's a lot of, yeah, suspicious behaviour. Her phone goes off within his property lines um, he says that she leaves at 9am, but she was supposed to come back at 5. It's only a two-hour drive. She was supposed to turn right out of his property, which is like the way back to where I was, but the car goes left to a dead end. So there's a lot of things where, for me, just reading it all, you just think, what? what? As an investigating officer, you think, like, surely you can hold him for something. Like, he was never interviewed even. Like, he was never – that mm. never even happened. So, yes, it's – 
I don't think they did their due diligence in they I don't think they did right by the investigation in the early days at the time yes. yeah so the investigation got better when Queensland homicide took it but it was with originally Ipswich police so it wasn't homi- it was always thought like she has been murdered but it was never actually taken to homicide until yeah maybe 2019 Two- yeah okay and then you came on the scene or back on the scene in, was it 2020? Yeah, so I had it reached out to the homicide police officer saying, like, I need to give another interview. Like, I was the closest person to my yeah, mum. Yeah, yeah. I know both of these people and I was there. Like, I, it just blew my mind how I couldn't have been interviewed more because I know the case so well, I suppose. So I reached out, I had a second, like, amendment interview, and then they put out the reward, which is when I started getting involved. But at the time, I was hopeful and I didn't know the extent of the, I'm going to say, alleged negligence of the police in the early days. So I wasn't aware of that. And then, obviously, they do a property search or that kind of leads to nowhere. We still haven't found her. So then it goes to the coroner's court and the coroner's court, I get the report and then I'm reading all of these things and I'm just seeing like all of the, it literally says like missed opportunities in black and white. Do you think it's possible that one of the reasons why the investigation was so lacklustre, particularly on Shaman, was because there was some kind of reciprocal protection happening exactly it's yeah it's very difficult to know but given his status and given the criminal history it would have been easy to take him to custody for something Mm. for anything it didn't even wouldn't have to be related to her even and they could have got him yeah which is why you you think like this seems suspicious but it's very hard yeah obviously a lot of families, family members would go down that way. But as soon as you start talking about that, you're looked at like a crazy person. <laughs> so it's yeah. very difficult. You've, and like especially with families trying to fight for justice, even I think my lawyers look at me and they're like, relax. Or like, Yeah, like you need to be very like level-headed or else people just will not listen to you at all. So you fought to get an inquest and you did it after a hard slog. Amazing. Just. <laughs> And the inquest now is just around the corner. And so how are you feeling about it now? I was feeling very hopeful when I got the inquest and slowly we've been going through the pre-inquest meetings and I've looked through all the evidence and just getting that lots of um, pushback. I think personally that it is just a ticking of the boxes and they said in court, three weeks ago that finding her body is not priority of this inquest and that paired with the literal coroner's act is to find out who what when where how so that's hard to do without a body but they refuse to make that a priority so it's the most traumatic experience it will be the most traumatic experience of my life it's going to be very traumatizing and I'm putting in a lot of time and effort, obviously, because I want to find my mum. So it feels like um, that if her body is not a priority, it's it's not pointless, but it feels like uh, a waste of time in the sense that the only things that will most likely come out of it will be 
future recommendations in regards to domestic violence and like the way the police conduct themselves, the way different rehab rehabilitation centres conduct themselves in terms of um, recommendations and advice to people that are going through domestic violence and child services is also involved. So there's a lot of big players involved. Um, but likely those changes have already been made and put into place because it was 11 years ago and everyone has gotten better with domestic violence. But, yeah, so there will be positive change for future victims of domestic violence and people that are going through those systems. However, it's it's a lot of future looking. Um, so yeah. it's not the priority, as I said, is not to find my mum's body and it's not a reinvestigation. So it's so, it's devastating, to be honest. Is your mum's case still open? Technically, no. So it got closed. Or the police say it's it's very confusing terminology. No one's working on it. No one's assigned to it, and it's just sitting there. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You would you would hope that one of the recommendations is a reinvestigation or to look again at someone or some piece of evidence if it hasn't been explored fully already. I know, I know that's probably the hope, but. I was very hopeful, as I said before, with the inquest. And then you just see, like, we're all reading the same evidence and you see how differently people look at it and the priorities. And it just makes you very, mm. very jaded <laughs> towards it all. It's very unjust and it's not victim focused it's not trauma informed it's none of those things so it's very hard to hope for anything positive Mm. excluding those recommendations that will help prevent future deaths the last thing i sort of wanted to ask you about is your project the tina greer project can you tell me a bit about how you got that started and what its mission is so i started the tina greer project after reading the coroner's report and reading that it is not in the public interest to hold an inquest reading that her death could not have been prevented, just reading so many incorrect and non-factual statements about my mum and about these broader topics. And I found that you need public interest to get an inquest. So I thought the best way to get public interest is to start the Tina Greer project, start a, like social media advocacy essentially on all of that to gain traction and public awareness and to get those signatures was obviously my first priority so I could get an inquest. And then broadly speaking, the goal of it is to provoke conversations or sorry, conversations that provoke change concerning um, domestic violence, missing persons and homicide because I have experience, lived experience with all of those three things and they're all very far-reaching and so many people do experience them but it's such a negative experience and there's not a lot of help or even just online awareness about a lot of those things. It's also about education. <laughs> so that's the purpose and the mission of the Tina Greer Project. So it's kind of those three things in tandem with my mum's case. Is the Tina Greer Project your full-time job? I wish it was my Maybe. full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be. Um, yeah. So I, I have two other jobs um, in like di- with different charities, but I work for a domestic violence charity and a homeless charity. But yeah, I, my goal is to make this my full time job, and I obviously put most of my time into this. Well, I hope that you achieve that goal, and I hope that something positive for Tina and for you comes out of the inquest. Yeah, I really admire 
the work that you're doing and I feel like you're a real inspiration and I reckon your mum would be super proud of you. Thank Um, you. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. I also wanted to mention MIST. It's the Aussie-based missing persons charity. Um, It was previously called MPAN. So that is like a really great support and I know that you're um, putting this out for Missing Persons Weeks and I believe there's some training that they're going to be doing around missing persons and ambiguous loss. I have support links in my show notes, so I'll definitely include MIST into those as well and the Tina Greer Project website and socials. Is there anything that I can do to help you or is there anything you want to say to the listeners? I would just say the best support you can do at the moment is to follow the journey and as long as there's public scrutiny on any missing persons or homicide case, it usually works in the family's favour. It's when the public stops hearing about it and knowing about it that things can go downhill really quickly. So Mm -hmm. that would be my main um, request is follow along. I think that's it, yeah. (laughs) And I'll look forward to hearing or following the inquest. Yeah, it's so, yeah. It's very unjust, (laughs) but it's just really a lot of ups and downs. Thank you, Lily, for your time today. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Bolo. If you'd like to connect with Lily or follow the journey, you can find her at the Tina Greer Project on all of the socials. That's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram and YouTube or at thetinagreerproject.com. Until next week, stay safe. Bye for now.